when someone has a view that they actually tie their identity to, and you present them with evidence to show them that they're wrong, often they will hold stronger to that belief than they did before. But what you've now done is you shift them from an idea to a religion. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write, a podcast about authors and the stories they struggle to tell. I'm Kyle. I'm Jeff. And this week on the show, we did something slightly different, but still in the same vein. We had our first scientist. I, you know, did Tim Urban count as a scientist? Um, I mean, I wouldn't call I, I wouldn't call him a scientist. I don't think he would call himself a scientist. He's Maybe a science he, writer. He qualifies as a social scientist, right? But there's a big difference between a science writer and someone who is actually conducting experiments. I would say. So, which which scientist did you get? Is Bill Nye on the show? It's Bo Lotto who is known probably most famously for his TED Talks on illusions. You can see his work all over the internet if you Google him. Uh, I'm sure you've inadvertently run into it at one point or another on Reddit or whatever the kids are using these days. Uh, But he's a really interesting guy. I took every opportunity during this episode to ask questions that I had no business asking um, of someone who is far and away smarter than I am. So I had a good time. So I I will say that I just finished the cut sheet and... I mean, maybe this is, you know, me just being an idiot, but uh, it is a dense conversation at times. I, you know what, though? I rarely get an opportunity to actually talk to someone <laughs> who does science, which is probably the dumbest way to say it. But it's the easiest way to get the point across, which is this is a guy who can answer some of the burning questions that I have, but maybe don't know how to ask. So you know what? I tried. I aimed high. I failed miserably on a couple that we cut. Um, but I think for the most part, it made for an interesting discussion about the format that he chose to write the book in, which is a little bit different than what we are used to seeing, and particularly how you deal with topics that are difficult for the layman to understand. So, Yeah, and so I just want to say quickly, uh, we are going to continue our trend of giving away a copy of this book. Uh, Bo Lotto's book is called Deviate, which you can pick up wherever books are sold. It's out uh, just a couple weeks ago from Hachette. Uh, and we're going to give away a copy. Just let us know what you think of the show by tweeting to us at WWW Podcast. Uh, we have already given away a copy of uh, The Knicks from Nathan Hill two weeks ago. And a month ago, uh, Colin Barrett's Youngblood. So if you want a copy of DVA after the conversation, uh, hit us up on Twitter. Anyway, let's get right to it. Welcome, Bo. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're excited to have you on because you are the first scientist that we've had on the show. Do you want to do you want to give us a little bit about where you're from, how you got to where you are, uh, what you're doing now, you know, what the book is about, what it's called? Yeah, well, that's kind of like everything. <laughs> yeah, we'll be we'll, we'll be here all night. You basically just have the one question. Yeah, and then I and then I go. Fifty five minutes left, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're off to dinner now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, actually, I'm curious. If I want to start with the, the question the other way. Um, why Why am I the first scientist? Have you avoided them? No, I, I think it's more just that... Let me tell you about a struggle that I've had, Bo. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jeff is primarily a fan of fiction. Um, and for listeners of this podcast, they might recognize this dynamic. We're a bit at odds when it comes to our reading tastes. Uh Um, Jeff is the one friend I have who 
reads everything he possibly can and will endlessly recommend things to you based on uh, what he perceives to be your taste, which for the most part works out. He's fantastic at it. Uh, But I've noticed that one of his blind spots is nonfiction and particularly things related to science. So Mm -hmm. I've been uh, locked in a struggle of wills to try and gear some more interviews towards nonfiction. Um, and your your book happened to be one of the battles that I won because it also sparked Jeff's interest. So great! I wonder why that was specifically your book, or just the <laughs> yeah. I uh, well, your publicist recommended it to me, and I I've been in in this this battle of my own will recently, where uh, your book is 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 generally speaking about. Uh, how our realities don't men- don't necessarily match up to like the actual realities in life or like our mm. perceived realities. Uh, and I, and I probably am butchering that description, but um, I have been applying that to my own outlook based around the, the general cultural and political climate that's happening today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, reading the pitch that I got for your book actually did a really great job of hooking me hmm. that's that's interesting because for me and that's great because in some sense i wanted to use science to not inform people about sort of the anatomy and physiology of perception which is so often the case you know you, you expect to read a science book and you expect to get right into the so the mechanisms of in this case perception but in this case i wanted to use science as almost more of a Trojan horse to give people a deeper understanding, not just of how we see, but why we see what we do in order to create the possibility that they might be able to use these principles to then see differently. I mean, I think your Trojan horse was effective, at least for me. (laughs) Very good. Um, So who am I? Uh, So I'm a neuroscientist. Um, I come from the West Coast of the States. Uh, and uh, specifically Seattle and San Francisco. Uh, and I left the States when I was about 23 and moved to Britain and spent the next 25 years living in Europe, in particular in the UK, Scotland and, and uh, England. And so what brought me to do neuroscience uh, is, well, often it's people, of course, bring you to, bring you to where you are. Um, and those people were uh, my teachers, um, and of course your parents, but um, very much my teachers. And I mean, it's in particular someone called Marion Diamond at Berkeley. Uh, Marion, if you haven't, if you don't know her, uh, she's an amazing woman. She's in her nineties now, uh, and she really embedded in the people who were fortunate enough to be her students that the brain is a muscle. You use it or lose it. And so I be <laughs> quite literally, you know, and so I became fascinated about that idea. And so I was very interested in thinking about what's the, how does the brain adapt? And what are the consequences of having an adaptive brain? And that's what led me to create the lab that I have, which is called the Lab of Misfits, which sort of sits in between an academic setting in the real world. Because if you really want to understand what it is to be human. We need to study people in their natural habitat. So we, the lab actually creates experiences in the world and both to make people part of that process of discovery, but also so they walk away with a better understanding of themselves. 
I want to. I do want to get to the lab because I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this book is that so much of it lives out in the world right now. Yeah. Um, but one thing I've always wondered about uh, scientists in particular, and for you, there's a very specific question I have. Where was there a point when you realized that you wanted to focus on the brain? Maybe it was in college before you met Marion, or I guess what was that process of discovery like for you, where you actually had to drill down and choose your focus yeah um well actually uh part of the answer has to do so i was an undergrad at berkeley at the time and part of the answer has to do with the fact that i played on the soccer team and i drank too much um (laughs) so as a consequence i was on academic probation for my first two um two semesters and was almost kicked out because i was i was actually pre-med uh, and so my interest was in fact being a cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, and then what happened was because I was enjoying myself in a different way at the beginning of university, um, that trajectory wasn't going to, wasn't going to work. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up actually, so then of course, during your first couple of years, you're taking what they call the breadth courses. So you're very open. You're taking lots of courses, history, language, etc. But it was only in the second half that I actually started having to focus. And in my case, I was focusing on science, of course, uh, as well as actually um, uh, religion and business. And when I started taking those science courses, they were in particular on the brain. And I had some wonderful instructors, uh, professors. And then suddenly... I found something that I hadn't discovered before, and I ended up finishing the top 2% in the last year or two, but the average meant I was very, very average, which of course I am as, <laughs> and, and, but I couldn't go to medical school. So I figured, shit, I still want to do science, but if I want to do science, I want to study something um, like the brain. And so I eventually got into the brain and ended up doing a PhD and thinking about how the brain actually grows. So I was, was in a wet lab is looking at the molecular and cellular and biochemistry of how the brain actually adapts and grows. So I used to go brain cells in a dish. <laughs> that, that seems like a, a, a very shorthand version of what you were probably really doing. <laughs> how so? <laughs> um, so... Can, well, I just mean... Like, I mean, put it, Do put brain it cells really grow in a dish? Can brain cells uh, grow in a dish? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, was, I was looking at the looking at the factors, the molecules, the chemicals that the brain releases that enable it to grow. So what's remarkable is that, and actually a lot of this starts with Marion Diamond uh, at Berkeley, but also my my other mentor, which is Dale Purvis at Duke University. Uh, I mean, he's one of the world leaders in, in neuroscience. And... What he was working on are the what's called trophic factors. Your brain cells grow because they get food that enables them to grow. But the brain cells are the source of their own food. And what's remarkable is that the more active your brain is, the more they release these chemicals, these trophic factors, which, enha- which enables them to grow. So the more active you are, the more your brain cells grow. The less active you are, the less they grow. So your brain is plastic. It's actually evolved to adapt which means that your brain evolved to match the complexity of its world. A more complex world, a more complex brain. A less complex world, a less complex brain. And it's a very good idea because 20% of the energy you consume goes to 2% of your body mass, which is your brain. It's a very expensive structure. 
I would love for all of this to mean that I will get smarter just by thinking more. You do. You do. Of that course, it the, depends on the kinds the of things thing you think. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think that I, might be my main problem. I mean, it's genuinely true. I mean, when you're thinking, especially if, uh, grappling and thinking about things you don't often think about, you're asking questions, your brain is actually engaged in a tremendous amount of activity. And each time your brain cells fire, it costs energy. And when you think, you actually, it, cannot, it can give you an emotional sense of elation and energy, but it's actually consuming a huge amount of energy, which can make you feel beautifully tired. So the process of thinking is hard. To think well is, is, requires literal effort. You is that see- why if, I, if I'm very busy at work, I'm more tired than if I run five miles of the gym? It can be. I mean, it depends on, of course, in what way you're busy at work. It can, you can also have fatigue from just doing routine. Right? Uh, repetition true. can give you fatigue. But I'm sure at your work mm-hmm. it's not that way. Right? Um, Sometimes, but not usually. <laughs> But if you're engaged in asking questions and exploration, it, it's this interesting mix where you're, uh, for people who are passionate about discovery, which I think everybody is innately, uh, you get this elation. So you get this sense of tremendous energy, but you feel beautifully fatigued at the end of it because you've been activating your brain in the same way you activate, well, in the same way you activate your muscle cells. Your muscle cells also require glucose energy. Uh, mm-hmm. ATP in the same way your brain cells do. Interesting. I think uh, the the struggle with this interview is going to be not is is to maintain the focus on writing <laughs> because there are so many interesting uh, ways that we could digress. But I want to go back to so you. Well, so this is, is the a, subject of your PhD, right? Yeah, I mean, writing is an example of that, right? Um, of right, the thinking yeah. required. So there's tremendous energy in the process of actually sitting there. And just forcing yourself to hammer out the keys. Yeah. Um, so you finish, your PhD, uh, you finish your PhD on this subject. What happens then? What, what is your path like from finishing that PhD to, uh, say, giving that TED Talk and eventually finishing this book? So the, or those the, TED Talks. Yeah, the next, the next step was to... Uh, so I was looking on the so the the mechanisms by which the brain adapts, and then I was given a tremendous opportunity to work with Dale Purvis at Duke to do a postdoctoral fellowship to look at the the consequences of having a brain that's adapted. And what's from what was amazing is I went to work with Dale because he was sort of one of the fathers of wet lab research in growing cells in dishes and looking to see how the brains actually change. But he himself was in a transition. And so I entered a lab that was, was asking questions it had never asked before. And when I joined the lab, he said, okay, we're going to work on color vision. Well, that was, it felt like a million miles away. And I remember thinking about how I felt in the context of a time of a clock. So you know that feeling when it's 3 in the, 3.30 in the morning, 4 in the morning? And you have this, it's just, it's the worst time of the day in a way to be awake. And when something's, you're really struggling with something, I refer it to sort of being, feeling like that moment when it's 3.30 in the morning. And as I started to get my head around this process of perception, the clock was slowly advancing to the morning and eventually it felt like noon. I had a, a sense that actually we, had a, we knew what we were talking about. And 
what was remarkable is we came at it from a very different perspective from most people who start in the field of perception. We came at it from an evolutionary behavioral perspective and from a neural mechanism perspective. And how do they all, usually come at it? Often people come at it from the perspective of psychology or philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were coming out, we're coming at the behavior from the physiology. And often it goes the other way around, not exclusively, of course, but that it's, it's not a typical route. But of course, it meant that we were entering a system that we were very, both very naive in, uh, which is basically stepping into uncertainty, which we'll come to when we talk about the book itself. Um, mm-hmm. And so we were embodying that process. And that led on to thinking about perception and, and, a, new, and a, a theory of perception we call the empirical theory of perception. I, everything we see is grounded in empiricism our past interactions with the world and led to a different way of thinking about illusions that they're not accidents of perceptions. They're not errors, but rather they give us insight to what the brain actually evolved to do, which is not to see the world accurately, but to see the world usefully evolution development. They're not there to make a system uh, be accurate. They're there because the system was useful. So everything we see, we see because it was useful to see in the past, which is not the same thing as seeing the world as it really is. This is not to say the world doesn't exist. Of course it exists. There's a physical world out there. And, it, and it's just that we don't now, for see our it. Lis- for, for our listeners, can you give us like uh, the most layman's term example of, of what you're talking about? Uh, which bit that I'm talking about? The, about the the perception and like you you've you have the learned sight uh you know based on what your brain has evolved to do yeah so imagine for instance so here's an evolution example it's apocryphal but it's a it's a um useful example where imagine you're walking uh your ancestors were walking along the savannah and they, and there's a region of darkness in front of them where there's not much light coming from this region it's falling onto the retina now there's a huge number of possible meanings or behavioral values attached to that low light um, from that ground. It could be a hole or it could actually just be a dark surface. Now, if it was a hole and you stepped into that dark region, well, that person would have been selected out. But if the behavior was such that they were able to walk around it, then that behavior would have been instantiated in our neural mechanisms. And so this process of trial and error through our evolutionary ancestors, uh, we have inherited. So what we, ha- what we get, what our functional structure of our brain represents, are the assumptions, the biases that have been shaped over the courses of hundreds of thousands of years, but also through the process of our lifetime. So these assumptions keep us alive. Now, what about the learned assumptions that don't keep us alive, that are just, you know, a hindrance to us? Um, and by that, I mean, like, all of the worst things about humanity, like sexism mm. and racism and, and bigotry. Yeah. Well, what was once useful, so almost all, all of our assumptions, for the most part, if we ignore sort of the epiphenomenon ones or, or others, but for the most part, all of our assumptions are there because they were useful at some point. But what, what was once useful may no longer be useful, which is why our brains also evolved to adapt. So how we change those assumptions is very, very difficult. 
But also those assumptions that might have been um, relevant in one context are in fact not relevant in another. Right? So we evolved, for instance, to, to love sweet things because it was not something that was common in our, in, um, our diet. But now when it's ubiquitous, we're still using the same mechanisms that we had a millennia ago. We're still applying them now. Right? So mm-hmm. how we change these assumptions, and especially a lot of our assumptions, uh, come from our culture. We inherit a lot of our assumptions. Most of our life happens without us there. And so, but so I mean, I, I see, I see where that works in the sense of like sweets or like a tiger or something. Um, but I mean, I guess I, I, and maybe I'm just being thick, but I guess I don't see like how that affects you know something like racism or bigotry, other than the fact that like it's passed down through generations, like you know verbally, and your you know hate, I guess, is taught that way. Um, yeah, but I mean, you're so, saying that it's like physically baked into like our cells that we need to like not step into that hole, or that we love yes. sweets. But what about something like that? Yeah, racism isn't necessarily baked into our into our um, genes or neural networks. What is baked in there is the fear of uncertainty, mm-hmm. of the fear of being excluded from our social environment. Because to be social was not an option throughout evolution. If you weren't social, if you weren't part of a group, you, you died. So the need to belong to a group is fundamental to us. It was fundamental to our survival. Uh, but mm-hmm. also the need to uh, be certain, to be able to predict, is so fundamental to us. To not know was to die uh, during evolution. You know, if you weren't sure that was a predator, it was too late. So a lot of our behaviors, a lot of our mechanisms are an attempt to decrease uncertainty, to not ask questions. Uh, and so the fear of the different, the fear of the unknown is, is very strong in us, right? So that, that makes a lot more sense to me than, than before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, like, you know, it's easy to say that we don't agree with it at this point. And I, don't, I think most people like can now recognize the the crazy like beliefs that you know we've had over the years but um why was it hard for people to recognize that like hundreds of years ago or was it just willful ignorance the uncertainty the fear of the unknown the fear of the different you mean mm-hmm. why was that it still is yes. difficult for people to recognize not just 100 years ago it still is today we're experiencing all the time um and Almost again, almost every single one of our behaviors is geared towards decreasing uncertainty in most contexts, not in all. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's and so much so that we will hold on to beliefs that even though we can can intellectualize and know them to be wrong, we will still hold on to them because the fear of the not known is so strong. And in fact, when someone has a view that they actually tie their identity to, and you present them with evidence to show them that they're wrong, often they will hold stronger to that belief than they did before. But what you've now done is you shift them from an idea to a religion. Right? This is what happened you, to a you just scientifically explained. You just scientifically explained Donald Trump. That's basically it. I mean, not basically. I don't want to yeah. oversimplify. But that is a very strong component. There's another component. But one component is that 
um, because what he stands for, etc., people identify with. Um, and mm-hmm. whether that be the closed-mindedness, uh, etc., in fact, one aspect, and again, this is pure speculation in this one view, but as mm-hmm. the world becomes more interconnected, it becomes increasingly unpredictable. It becomes increasingly uncertain. Why is that? It's because when the metaphorical butterfly flapping its wings on the other side of the world, it would eventually affect us. That's called chaos theory. But it might not be for 30, 40, even 100 years. But now when the metaphorical butterfly flaps its wings on the other side of the world, we feel it the next day. So this is something that fascinated me when I read it in the book. Um, this, the idea that as we become more interconnected, we become less predictable. Yes. Um, it would seem that as we become less predictable but more interconnected, our ability to actually predict most of the outcomes that are happening based on just the sheer availability of data would become greater. Like our ability to actually predict what would happen would increase. Not necessarily. Wouldn't it? No, not necessarily. Because uh, if you think about complex systems theory, what does that mean? Complex systems theory is the description of how uh, the elements interact and how that interaction gives rise to something. An example is a whirlpool. You can't understand a whirlpool more or less by studying the individual water molecules. The whirlpool exists in the interaction between the water molecules. It's an emergent state of interaction. Right? So the same thing, ha- of course, the weather is a beautiful example of that, but also so are, are social interactions. It's the emergent consequence of people interacting. And the more interaction you have, the more emergent uh, attractor states can, can arise. But the point is that with emergent systems, they're not necessarily predictable. What's more, the individual elements have very little control over them. So one way to exhibit control is the, is the way that, for instance, Brexit. We were living in the UK when there was a Brexit vote. And then we moved to New York just in time for the election. So France is no longer letting us enter their country unless we affect their election. Um, and what... <laughs> so we can't travel There's now. an Interpol notice out for you. Yeah. Um, and so one way of increasing control is, of course, to isolate yourself, to reduce the number of connections. Right? You become an isolationist. But of course, in a world where we're, we can't effectively, can't really literally do that anymore because you've got things like the internet, it becomes a useless exercise. And, it, and therefore, you actually increase fear and uncertainty further because the illusion that you're going to be able to control it, um, as opposed to maybe influence it or embrace it and see the merits and quality of having that emergence rather than trying to isolate yourself from it. And so hence one reason why I would suggest that there's an element of trying to isolate oneself because we're trying to decrease uncertainty by is increasing control over our own fate. But the question is, can we actually do that given the fact that the world is interconnected? Um, if, you, if you follow that thread, is there a way in which one might be able to disconnect enough to actively take back some of that control? Uh, if you cut enough threads, do you actually reduce the exposure? Uh, yes to, and no, and it depends on the threads you cut. Unpredictability. Right. So you could have um, you could have 
a hundred threads, but it could be only one of them that has a very strong influence over you where the other 99 have a very light influence. So it's knowing mm. which threads to cut, but also why would you necessarily want to cut all the threads? Because the best solutions exist in a complex space. So what do I mean by that? If you have a, a set of complex interactions, uh, you get what's called a search space. It's a space of possibility, the space of solutions. Because you have more possible solutions, the possibility of the best one being in that space is highly likely. If you have a very simple, let's say a, a space of a line, you can only have two directions to move. The probability of having a, the best solution is very small. It's a very easy space to move in, but the probability of a good solution is very small. So you actually want complexity. You don't want complicatedness. You want complexity. But you don't want too much complexity, nor do you want too little. And of course, how much is required depends on the context, the system, and that is where empiricism comes in. That's where trial and error and learning come in. That's what evolution does. I'm going to back up a little bit because I think we are getting a little bit far afield. Uh, we have you on the show because you have written a book called Deviate. Yep. The Science of Seeing Differently, yeah. which encompasses quite a few of the ideas that we've discussed. Uh, I have a bunch of like wonky writing, publishing questions to relate to this book. But before I, I jump into that, can you give us the, the cliff notes of uh, what this book is about and why you wrote it? Yeah, so what it's about is about the nature of perception, and it's trying to give a sense of the principles of how and why we see what we do. And in understanding the principle, and the basic take-home message for that is to create the awareness that everything you do and see and behave is grounded in assumptions that come from history. And again, not just your history, their cultural history, evolutionary history. And once you understand that, it then leads into the question of, well, how do we see differently? And how can we then, and what are the challenges to seeing differently, to be creative, in other words, to deviate? And it walks through some suggestions about what makes deviating, what makes seeing differently so difficult. And one of them is that we tend to think we have an objective view of the world. Now, this isn't postmodern relativism. This isn't to say all perceptions are equivalent. They aren't. Some perceptions are better than others in the same way that during evolution, one trait was better than another. It's just that you don't know which trait that is a priori, nor do you know if that trait is going to be beneficial in every context. It usually isn't, right? Well, we walk through then what are the challenges to basically um, uh, challenging that notion that we have an objective view of the world and then finding out what our assumptions are and then questioning them. And it goes through a process of, of identifying all those three. But why I did it, is because I want to create doubt, a combination of doubt and courage. Because nothing interesting begins with knowing. Now, my question, knowing. though, is yeah. if you're trying to create doubt, why is, and I'm not, this is not a judgment, this is a question, why is a book the best way to do that? Hmm. The best medium to do that? I don't know if it's the best one. It's one of them, obviously. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, I tried to design this particular book in a way that would 
enable the reader to, including myself in the process of writing it, but enable the reader to make discoveries Mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily laid out for them. Because in some sense, as soon as I tell something to someone, I've taken it from them. But if your brain can Mm -hmm. create the connections itself through that active process of discovery, it becomes, it translates it from information to understanding. So of course, I could have written a book that was very informative about how the brain works and the neurophysiology and all that, but that wouldn't necessarily create a sense of understanding. And I think uh, the written word and story and narrative is so fundamental. Well, narrative is such a fundamental aspect of how the brain itself works. Everything you see is right now a consequence of a narrative. A narrative is just a sequence of events, in this case, a sequence of meanings. And so how your brain constructs perceptions is very much the sequence of the book itself and how we actually engage in books and in reading. Now, you explore that in both figurative and literal ways in in this particular book. Uh, You know, you have typeface that goes crazy. You have pages that are upside down. You have, you know, 10 pages in a row that are just visuals. Uh, There are doodles on random pages. Now, why did you choose to structure the book this way? And two, how hard was it for you to convince the publisher to actually do it? (laughs) Um, Well, actually, I'll take the back one, the last one first. Um, I was so fortunate to have the publishers that I had, um, that I have, uh, and Moreau and Paul, um, Paul in the UK and Moreau in, in the US, um, they were incredibly supportive mm-hmm. of it because the argument was that we're doing a talk, we're doing a talk, we're doing a book about perception, and in particular about how we can use perception to see differently. And the title of the book is about deviating. And I'm a firm believer in the concept of tropes. You are the thing that you talk about. Because, and you have to truly believe it because the brain is so good at detecting authenticity. So I thought, how could we write a book about perception and seeing differently and deviating and still keep the book itself a completely undeviating format? So it needed to embody the things that it's talking about. And that's one aspect. And so they understood that and, and completely embraced it, actually. Uh, very supportive. And, and in fact, a lot, of the, a lot of the concepts of, and this, to me, that was, you know, scientists work in collaboration. For me, this was a collaborative project. Um, the best collaborations mm-hmm. is where you end up someplace that you didn't think you would end up in the first place. Uh, and so the book is a manifestation of that. Um, and so why do it in this way? It's because, again, it's a trope, but also because the brain makes meaning by actively engaging with the world. Uh, by physical, not by passively mm-hmm. receiving content, not by Facebook broadcasts, it, by actively engaging. And so I wanted people to actually engage with the materiality of the book because we keep forgetting that our brain evolved in our body and our body and our world. And so by turning the book around by um, its, the, and metaphorically and literally, um, they're actively engaged in the process of reading. Mm-hmm. And you chat about this in the book and in, in other you know promotional materials that you've created through your company and through like the promotional process of pushing this book. But 
I guess my question is like in in that regard, what you're saying is that like our brain reacts differently to to seeing you know like a post on Facebook or like a blog or something than it does to like a physical manifestation of that same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're promoting a book, so you still actually have to try and promote this thing online because it's 2017. Um, yeah. So how did you go about doing that? Of promoting the book in 2017. Um, well, yeah, was there that, anything that like generally contradicted what you're talking about? Uh, let's see. Um, yes and no. I mean, most of the promotion is, is through things like this, through conversation. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I don't we're, know. We're happy to do it, by the way. Everybody go buy the book. <laughs> um, but <laughs> uh, so that's an active engagement with the topic and, and getting people to, to think uh, actively about for better or for worse about what this is about um and so the um that's one way of of doing it but um we also are creating experiences uh which get people to physically engage with the topic uh which we call the experiment um so that's my interest but also i want to think about getting the book in the context of deviators um, and also in the context of conflict and thinking about new ways to experience and think about conflict. So it's also where it gets positioned and gets pushed. And that has to do with why the book exists as opposed to the how and the what and the where. Um, I've noticed you've spoken a lot about in the past about augmented reality. Yeah. Um, have you, well, I was wondering if there were any proposed uh, augmented reality portions of this book like we've seen with some of the other uh, offerings this year in particular. It seems to be pretty hot. So right. I have a startup that's an augmented reality startup. and Augment, okay, I'm sorry. I thought it was virtual reality. No, my so apologies. my lab has done work in virtual reality um, in collaboration with uh, some people who are experts, who are leaders in virtual reality. We, of course, approach it not from the tech side, but from the perception side. Uh, for me, there's tremendous power in augmented reality. I know of a lot of stories that have been translated into virtual reality. I don't know many, if any, that are... Well, yes, there are stories in augmented reality where the stories, of course, take place in a context. And for me, that has tremendous potential. And one of our platforms exactly that. It's oh, yeah. storytelling in the real world. And the concept is that people can actually leave their stories floating in space because the world provides the context for the narrative. So imagine reading a story in a cafe hmm. where the, the, the narrative actually takes place in the cafe. And then you go to the next location yeah. where they then, where you experience the, this, that part of the story in the underground, but the underground is actually happening and you hear the underground and you don't know, is that the, is that an actual train coming or is that because the train in the story is coming? And so I like this where there is an ambiguity um, as to the world and the story that's being told. And so in that sense, the storytelling becomes more of creating the ecology and, and uh, it creates an, a potential for a new kind of meaning. And of course, the journey between the elements, uh, between the locations also becomes part of the, part of the story. And that's, we've actually created a platform do, for doing exactly that because I think that's a tremendous possibility um, for a new kind of storytelling. 
Where can I sign up? <laughs> it's called Traces. You can download it now. Traces. Yeah. And it explores linear and nonlinear um, When you write your next book, will it be delivered through that? Um, well, I, I love it too, actually. And we're working with, we're working with uh, publishers on and recruiting authors to, to do this as a, as a new way of storytelling, but also a new way of authorship and a new way for authors to engage with public because then they can effectively buy tickets in the same way you would a show. You can almost buy a ticket and you would be able to have access to their story and the experience that they create for you. That sounds like an incredible use of augmented reality. I feel like we've been waiting um, lately with the advent of VR technology for somebody to really break through on the AR side and show us, uh, like Pokemon Go, the potential for people to experience things together in the real world that are based in the digital uh, yes. creation medium. Like there's so much power there that just hasn't been taken advantage of. There's huge power because if you think about it, in some sense, we do it all already. So it's just that you don't have any control over it. So I have no control over when people or where people read Deviate. Or if I'm a short story author, I have no idea where they're going to read it. Or if I just send a message to someone I care about, uh, I have no control over where they're going to read it. Now, let's imagine it's an intimate message. That person could be reading it in the London Underground where it's completely cramped and they're stressed. They're going to give it one kind of interpretation versus if they're reading it in a park, the sun's up and it's beautiful, they'll give it a completely, potentially a completely different interpretation. And you have no control over that. And the response could be completely unpredictable. But now imagine you could actually control the context in which people engage with your story. Right? So that context now becomes integral to the story itself. I mean, the next greatest technology is the world itself, right? Um, so to be able to be part of that world and create layers on that world uh, is essential to storytelling, I would suggest. And it already is, it's just that you don't influence it. I feel like it's essential to so many more things than storytelling. Like to me, the potential application seems endless. I do a service called uh, Blue Apron where they send you a recipe and a bunch of ingredients and you cook, yes. uh, basically. But trying to imagine a way in which that would be improved by AR is very easy. Like mm -hmm. to have an actual visual timer or visual instructions about how to chop something or how to do something else in real time displayed in front of you on the world in which you're interacting with. It just seems like the next logical step. Somebody's showing you a recipe instead of a piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think we just um, came up with our next business plan. <laughs> well, you can use traces for that. Um, so, uh, I mean, we yeah. have another one where people basically, uh, which we're launching, uh, it's going live in just the next couple of weeks. So actually you'd be the first ones to, to hear about it. Uh, where basically people can float their animal spirit and their animal spirit follows them wherever they go. So, Like so a demon you, from... Uh... Exactly, it's a demon. Or even before that, it's a familiar, if, you know, if you're familiar with the concept of familiars. Uh, and so there's this idea that you, know, you have yes. a spirit animal. So you can choose your spirit animal. You can choose a, a dragon or an or a, um, emoji. And it literally follows you inside a drop of water. And people can get their phone out, they can see it, and they can pop it, and then they can see who you are, but only within 150 meters or so. Right? So the point it is sounds used... like uh, <laughs> it's so cool. So the point is used digital. Sounds to get like people an episode of Black Mirror. 
<laughs> well, in this case, you don't rate them, <laughs> um, but it's the way to actually it's the way to get people to engage with each other because using digital to get people off digital, right? It's getting people to re-engage with the world again. It's like Pokemon. Yeah, it's Pokemon, except the people are themselves Pokemon, right? Each person is their own Pokemon. And it's a way to get people to engage with each other. It's essentially like a digital handshake. You know, the reason why we handshake and say, how are you doing? I mean, how many times have you been in conversation? You say, so how are you doing? And then and it's to someone you've never really met. And then about 30 seconds, a minute into the conversation, it's quite good. You just say, so, so how are you doing? Um, in other words, the first question was just a handshake. It was just a, um, a formality in order to sort of break that ice into conversation. And this is a way of doing that. You can get a sense of who someone is, what they care about. Um, and then it gives you a way to actually get into conversation with them and to meet them and to form tribes. But hmm. you're doing it in the world because that's where your brain makes meaning. It does it by physically engaging with the world. Um, so we're, that's why we're using digital in this way. Um, and so Migo is going to be out. We're going to release it in just a couple of weeks. I'm sorry, what's the name of it? Migo. M-E-E-G-O. Migo. Yeah. Great. Kyle's writing it down right now. He, he's going to go and you know, get himself like a pet llama. Um, <laughs> I will be an early adopter. <laughs> but, uh, well, so, but I want to I wanna get back to the book for, for one second because I wanted sure. to ask you, um, you know, did you did you have any intention uh, of like relating this to, to general culture in the zeitgeist that we're living in today. Um, you know, in terms of like how you want people to, to deviate from their, their lived reality and culture and, and societal issues today. Um, yeah, I don't know. It did. Did that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, I think, um, I'm sure it does. <laughs> um, what, uh, so, is there, is there a direction I want people to go? I suppose there's a personal direction I'd like people to go. I'd like people to become more complex. What does that mean? I want people to be more open. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be my bias. That's my bias. I think to be liberal or conservative, I think a truly liberal person means they have the ability to change their, per- their view. So telegraph readers in the UK can actually be very liberal and people who are guardian readers can be very conservative. Uh, the question is, how willing are they to deviate from where they are right now? And so, but where they go is up to them. Um, my interest is in, in creating a context that would help people to understand why they might want to. And in particular, why it's necessary to enter conflict in a way that's different from the way we normally enter conflict. Uh, we typically enter conflict which is ironically the only place we can actually learn anything is often just through conflict. If you define conflict is entering a situation which is different from what you expect, uh, we typically enter conflict in a way that we, that we want to win. I want to prove that you're wrong and to shift you towards me and you're trying to do exactly the opposite, prove that I'm wrong, I'm wrong to shift me towards you. But that's because we enter conflict with certainty, we enter it with answers. But with Deviate, I want to give people the motivation to enter with questions and with doubt. Uh, because only then do you have the possibility or, of expanding, not necessarily changing, but expanding your space of possibility. 
So at this point in the conversation, the book has been out for about a week. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, I think literally a week. Have, have you seen like any initial reactions that have surprised you to to the early readers? Uh, yeah. Has there been uh, not... like a moment where you get you get a message in your inbox? That... Yeah, I have to say I've I've been very um, the the responses have been. It seems very genuinely uh, very positive. I've got some very personal emails already. Um, a lot of what I say in the book, I also do in my talks. And so I've had a lot of feedback over the last 10 years about the, the, this way of thinking. But I've also uh, had feedback where people have a particular view of the way science books are supposed to be. That they want to see anatomy physiology drawings that they want to see uh, a sto- accurate historical, well, of course they want to see accuracy, but they want to see a historical representation that it meant to be a history book. Um, you know, it's biased towards the academic. Um, and I see this much more as a, a book that has speculation in it. Speculation is grounded in the neuroscience of perception, but it's also got speculation. It's, it's trying to raise questions because again, it's trying to be a trope. It's not trying to provide answers all the answers by any means is trying to raise questions. And so it's interesting that some people find that challenging because they think the science book is supposed to just be about facts. Um, as opposed, and, and then you have, of course you have people who want to look for recipes. They want to find rules for how they can see differently, but rules are very fragile. They're very specific to a context. They're very efficient, but they're very specific to that moment. Whereas the aim and deviate is to provide principles. Uh, principles transcend context. And so it, it's a more challenging way to engage with it because then you have to do the thinking about how can I apply this principle in my own context. So I think we've uh, hit the point in the show where we generally segue, uh, sometimes less gracefully than others, to talk about the story that you've struggled to tell. Um, and I know for you... Uh, in particular, there are less stories you've struggled to tell than there are stories that maybe uh, you've struggled to have be understood by the general reading public. Um, or uh, we might actually ask you to adjust this concept as you see fit, because actually the story today is going to be a surprise for both Jeff and I. So um, with that, I would offer it to you. Uh, and me. <laughs> oh, so it's new for everyone. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Um, triple threat. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I suppose there are a number of stories that are that I find or concepts that are um, for me are intuitive. Doesn't necessarily make them right by any means. They're based on my own assumption and experience, which I can find sometimes difficult to relate. Um, partly because just the process of relating it, because it's um, itself maybe an idea that is different, but also because the assumptions and biases can be so strong and one of those stories is about science itself and science and especially science education is we tend to have this view that science is about facts it's not creative often you'll see those two phrases juxtaposed they'll say science and creativity uh, that science often taught in schools is a history lesson we don't often teach children science. We teach them the facts and the dates. Those are history lessons that are very important, but should be taught in a history class. And 
And we often think about science as a methodology, the scientific method. And that is true, but that's the craft of science. That's like defining a painting in terms of the technique of brushstrokes. Hugely important. Results in the beautiful painting, but that's not actually what captures the painting. So I and we've been playing with this concept that science is not that. That's an aspect of science, but that's not what defines it. But rather what defines it is that it's a way of being. It's a state. And that, what's more, it's an evolved state. That science is evolution's solution to how we step into uncertainty. Because the need to adapt is so fundamental to our survival. And our fear of uncertainty is so great that we had to create a context in which uncertainty is actually not just tolerated, but celebrated. And that celebration of uncertainty, which we also also experience, which we all also experience, is where questions are exciting to not know. I mean, um, and that is science. But then if you think, well, what is science then? What it really is, is play with intention. It's not like play. It is play. Because play is really why uh, play evolved because it gives the brain the ability to step into uncertainty. To not know the punchline of a joke is why it's funny. To not know who's going to win the game is why it's fun. So we love uncertainty. We create uncertainty through play. And that's exactly the same as science. The difference is that science has an intention. And I'd argue that almost anything that is innovative is play with intention. Not everything, but a lot of things that we do that innovate are play with intention. We adopt that way of being. And this isn't to say that science is fun and, and playful, but rather to play well is hard. To do science well is hard. To ask great questions is hard. But we have to adopt this way of being that makes the process of asking questions a positive thing. So telling the story that science is play with intention can actually be very difficult, especially when talking to scientists. Um, because we have such strong preconceptions of what science is about facts and it's about the methodology. But in fact, we're teaching children how to be sous chefs, not chefs. That's an interesting analogy. The science, the way we typically think about it. So that's one. I feel like this, yeah. this whole conversation. I mean, you think about a, su- I mean, a chef, you know, you, you miss. Yeah. I feel like this whole conversation has been set up to try and get me to start more, more science books. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I mean, a, a chef, of course, if you're mi- missing your cumin, right? A chef knows why the cumin's there and can adapt to the missing of the cumin with other ingredients. But if you don't know why it's there, uh, then you have no way to adapt, right? So it's the difference between intelligence and wisdom often. I mean, that's a, that's a generalization hugely, but... Um, it's about we tend to focus on teaching efficiency in schools. We don't tend to focus on creating, uh, teaching creativity. We don't teach children what a good question is, much less how to ask them. We teach, we teach them that there's a right answer and the best way to get to it. Well, I was going to yeah? say there's also like a fundamental conception that creativity can't be taught. Yes. And in my view, as in Deviate, there's nothing creative about creativity. Okay, it's a general statement, um, but the idea is that creativity is created from the outside, not from the inside. Because when you do something, 
Your brain doesn't do big jumps. It does a small step, and it's a step to the next most likely possible, given your space of possibility. That space of possibility is constrained by your assumptions. Right? Now, when I see you doing something and I think it's creative, it's because I see you linking two things that are far apart together. And I think, wow, how did he bring those two things that are far apart together? That's wonderfully creative. But for you, they're not far apart. They're right next to each other. It's for me that they're far apart. It's because in my space, it's a different space of possibility. I have different assumptions, different biases. So it's created from the outside, not from the in. You're just making a, the next most likely step to the next most likely possible, given your assumptions. So creativity is really about making small steps, but changing what's next to you by changing your assumptions. And you do that through asking questions, by knowing what your assumptions are, and then question them. And that's the process of science, which is basically a Trojan horse to teaching children and others about how to adapt. And there it because is. Because everything that is creative, I would suggest, uses the same process. So there's a general statement that is a difficult story that's, uh, that's been a difficult story to tell. <laughs> well, it, it, that, that whole conversation went very full circle. Does it make sense? I think so, yeah. <laughs> So, um, well, there we go. Yeah. Well, Bo, this was great, and we really appreciate you spending your time with us. What did you think about that, Jeff? Did we do the topic justice? Yeah, I mean, I think we did. It was a little bit weird because I, I was, you know, I listened through the whole thing after we did the interview, and it was a big, big stride from, uh, you know, the typical writing wonkiness that we talk about. Uh, only a really small portion of this was actually about writing. Uh, so I hope our listeners liked it. I, I was pretty intrigued, but, um, you know, it was it was a far cry from what we usually deliver. So One of the reasons I do the show is so that we can talk to people um, outside of our experience. But part of the reason I wanted to do, I wanted to interview someone like Bo is so that I can just ask them uh, the questions that I have no business asking. So for me, I feel like it scratched that particular itch and we'll probably do it again. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, And if you didn't, tell us why on Twitter. Yeah, Um, you can win a free copy of the book that you probably won't enjoy if you didn't like the interview. Send Um, me your angry comments. I'm all ears. Uh, so you can send that to us on Twitter at www podcast. Uh, our website is www.podcast.com. We have uh, an Instagram, www.pod, Facebook page. Uh, we have a tiny letter newsletter at tinyletter.com slash podcast. Uh, the book is Deviate, out from Hachette, uh, wherever books are sold. Uh, you can find Bo at... Bo Lotto, B-E-A-U-L-O-T-T-O on Twitter, or you can go to labofmisfits.com and uh, sign up for a newsletter where you can get news on all these cool new augmented reality apps that he's putting out. I hope you enjoy it all. Um, The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. Whenever his new CD comes out, we're going to get him on the show. He doesn't know it yet, but it'll happen. Uh, and then the uh, music that you heard right in the middle for the, the very short ad that may or may not have popped up uh, was from Ben Sound, which you can find at bensound.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you in two weeks with a very special guest, Aaron Lammer of the Long Form Podcast, the Stoner Podcast, and Francis in the Lights. We'll see you then.